You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today we'll be joined by an inspiring young academic that I first met as she delivered a leadership training course for Surf Life Saving. Dr. Vivian Fauna is a Hungarian-born Australian who works at the interface between psychology, organisational management, and volunteering. Amazingly, it's a career path Vivian joined somewhat by accident after challenges with collecting data for her PhD program forced her to pivot into an entirely new area of research. But despite the setbacks of her program, Vivian took to this new research field with gusto, and she has since brought the tools of self-determination theory to major Australian volunteer organisations, including the SES, Rural Fire Service, and Surf Life Saving. As well as conducting her own research, Vivian is also an expert science communicator. In 2019, she represented Australia at the Asia-Pacific finals of the three-minute thesis competition, an annual competition challenging PhD candidates to summarise their research in under three minutes. She's now the founder and CEO of the Institute of Management Psychology, a consultancy and research agency based on her work and an organisation that applies management practice inside and out. Dr. Vivian Fauna, welcome to Lab Notes. Thanks, Leo. So can we start with a quick overview of your current role? You're the founder and CEO of the Institute for Management Psychology. Can you tell us a bit about this business and and the work that you do? Absolutely. So the Institute of Management Psychology is really a broad, I guess, global research centre. Typically in universities, we have research centres that are faculty-based. However, this kind of turns that idea outside of universities Um, and you can have any academic from any university that works in this space, we can all work together and collaborate. So all my friends and my colleagues that work in a similar area or have similar interests in research, we can come together and work on a project with an industry research sponsor and do like collaborative industry-based research, which is kind of what the Institute of Management Psychology enables us to do. Um, So we have members who are from Australian universities as well as universities overseas in the Netherlands and in America um, working together collaborating on having impact with industry. And could you give us a sense of what those industries are? Who, Who are your clients at the moment? Absolutely. So I guess I'm working currently with Surf Life Saving New South Wales who are Australia's largest volunteer organisation. Um, So my research expertise thus far has primarily been focused in the volunteer sector and helping volunteer organisations better look after and retain their volunteer members. So I suppose there's a lot of problems in the Australian volunteer sector at the moment, key trends that are happening that's resulting in many organisations really struggling with high turnover Um, And because Australia relies so heavily on volunteers to deliver vital services, such as emergency services, the loss of volunteering has a big impact, not on just the organisations, but on Australia's general population as well. So it's working on different projects that kind of help tackle that underlying problem of how to better satisfy and retain volunteers. Thanks for that, Vivian. And if you don't mind, I'd like to dive back and I guess get a bit of a sense for your personal history as well, because 
You're from a migrant family. You were born in kind of the Eastern Bloc in Europe and migrated here when you were quite young. But nevertheless, you've had that, that experience of having to build up from scratch with your family. Could you tell us a bit about your early life and uh, what you remember of growing up in Australia from that, that starting point? Absolutely. Um, so I was born in Budapest in Hungary um, and my family came out to Australia when I was about four years old. So most of my early life is spent with a migrant family and having that experience of working hard and making a life and, you know, you can get whatever you want if you work hard enough for it is kind of the motto that was instilled in me from a really, really early age. Obviously, my parents had accents and when you're a kid, um, you don't really like anything that makes you different. So I tried to integrate myself into Australian culture as easily and quickly as I could and um, kind of hid the fact that I was Hungarian. It was almost a little bit embarrassing when I was a kid. Um, But now it's become a really interesting and unique part about me and part of my story, which is pretty cool as well and has shaped me to become the person I am. And you certainly excelled at school as well. You ultimately found your way into university studying psychology. Now, this obviously wasn't the industry your parents were in. So were there any other mentors or kind of guides that brought you into psychology and this academic career path? How did I end up in an academic career path? I never intended to be. So I had I, I did an undergraduate psychology degree. The, there's lots of areas of psychology, lots of different spaces that psychology occupies, but most people think of clinical psychology, mental health, like a therapist. And very early on during my psychology degree, I realised that that wasn't the path for me. Probably one of the biggest experiences was in, I think maybe in about second year, we had some abnormal psychology subject and the, we had to watch some videos of people with different psychological conditions and mental health conditions talk about their experience of that condition and I realized at that point how affected I became by listening to people's stories and then there was someone with mania um, which is the opposite of depression almost when you get bipolar people someone that was in that manic stage and they were talking 100 miles an hour and they were really really excited and and then I realized like oh that that's a very different experience and that kind of helped me better understand that I'm obviously very heavily affected by people around me and and how they're feeling and what's happening for them and a clinical path is not going to be the right choice for me so I started looking at other opportunities um, and other areas of psychology and ended up coming across a internship so with psychology you have to do um, to become a registered psychologist is six years so you do a four-year degree undergrad and then another two years that you can do either through a master's or you can do it via supervision, which is kind of like an internship. And I saw an ad for an internship, and it was in organisational psychology, which is the psychology of business and workplaces. And I applied, and I got it, and then the rest is history. Yeah, and look, I understand there was one particular mentor in that phase, Dr David Rossetti. Can you tell us about like how your relationship with David formed and, and what advice he was giving you through that period? Absolutely. So Dr. David Rossetti was my supervisor of the internship. He was the one that gave me the role. He was my mentor and my manager and took me under his wing and shaped me to become an applied psychologist that I that I am today. I think one of the most valuable experiences was opportunities to be involved in projects 
and work with senior executives. So a lot of the work we were doing was around leadership development, identifying the organization's high potential leaders and creating targeted development experiences for them. So in that project, I was exposed to conversations with very, very senior executives, um, doing projects at board level visibility and working at this really, really high level, even though I was only like 20 at the most, completely inexperienced and was in over my head. But I had these opportunities to work at this really, really high level, which was incredibly valuable. Yeah, great, Vivian. And and as you mentioned, your next step was a PhD and you transitioned out of psychology and into business. How did you find the differences between the academic approach in those two faculties? <laughs> very, very different. Very, very different. It was interesting because I guess organisational psychology sits in the middle of both of those fields, of the field of management and organisational behaviour and the field of psychology. So I'm I guess I'm multidisciplinary and I can skip between the two, which is nice. Um, But definitely as a psychologist, um, being in a business faculty, it's a very different academic approach. First of all, the research paradigms that we use, psychology is very science-based. So psychology is all like positivist. I was trained in experimental studies and what's considered quality research is focused on quantitative data. Um, I had statistical training as a psychologist as well. So this is what underpins who I am as a researcher. And that is very different to the constructivist and interpretivist approach that is found more commonly in management field. They do more interviews and focus groups and understanding, I guess, research in a different way and collecting data in a different way. It's a very different approach. So it was quite challenging for me to work in a faculty where that's the predominant paradigm because it was hard for me to find research supervisors that were able to support me with the quantitative data analysis. Um, Although there's like marketing people that are in that space, but in management, less so. Um, But it also gives me a point of difference, gives me extra skills that Um, other people might not have around quantitative data analysis and my research methodologies and stuff. So it complements really well because, yeah, we can work together in a way that creates a more rich understanding of the problem. So can we speak about your PhD journey, Vivian? I think anyone who's gone through a PhD process knows that it's not always a smooth path. There's always problems and challenges that come up and often the PhD lasts longer than you might have originally anticipated or planned for. But I also think your journey might have had a few more than your fair share. There's two issues I'd really like to delve into. One was a topic change and the other was becoming a mother pathway through this journey. But to to touch on the first one first, you start off with an industry-sponsored PhD and then partway through had to change your project almost entirely. Could you tell us that story of, of what your initial project was and what happened that made you change? So I came into academia and I came into a PhD with an industry-sponsored PhD research project. So the agreement was that this industry partner um, had some research outcomes that they were looking to achieve. They sponsored that research. I, as the student, was selected through a recruitment process to conduct that research. And the idea was that I could shape the research to whatever my interests were and create a PhD out of it. 
and in doing so could access their clients as the participants and they would get the research outcomes that they were looking to explore and investigate. So it all sounded really, really exciting. Um, they had tens of thousands of clients and how many employees that their clients had. So that was the projected population or sample that I had to go off in developing the research project. Lots of numbers. I'm a quantitative researcher. Awesome. So I designed a quantitative research project um, with structural equation modelling and an experimental study that was all based on access to a large sample. However, after three and a half years of trying, we weren't able to successfully get the sample size that we needed for the studies. So the organisation had lost their one of their key, I guess, business champions of the research, who was also would have been promoting the project and, and getting their clients engaged. And over time, we the organisation kept saying, oh, we'll try and get more people, we'll try and get more people. And we kept trying and trying and trying. And how long do you keep trying? Well, the answer for me was three and a half years. And at that point, I had to make a very, very difficult decision because while we had enough data to be able to give them their research outcomes from a quality research perspective, from a positivist perspective, my sample size was not sufficient to be able to conduct the research for a PhD. So at that point, um, I had to accept that we had to close that project I delivered all the outcomes for the organisation, I wrote up the results, I wrote up the data for them, and then started from scratch, basically. So after three and a half years, almost an entire PhD worth of time, Vivian's collaborator and industry partner wasn't providing the data she needed to complete her studies. But as luck would have it, Vivian had already started working on a side project that would ultimately become her second PhD. It was a project funded under a special university initiative called Global Challenges, which supported focused, industry-based research. Working with a fellow faculty member and soon-to-be supervisor, Michael Jones, Vivian had pitched the idea of applying self-determination theory to volunteer organisations. I met Dr. Michael Jones in my faculty, who was doing some research in volunteer organisations. And he was talking about this, this leadership problem that volunteer organisations have. Now, my expertise is in leadership and my PhD at the time was in leadership and my background is in leadership. So I was like, oh, you know, I'm using this theory at the moment for this project I'm doing. Maybe we could use that to solve this problem. So he's like, oh, what will we do? And I came up with this idea of a leadership development program based on self-determination theory, which is science's best understanding of motivation. Um, and he said, okay, well, let's try it. So we decided that we'd put it into a project. We got a whole bunch of other academics from around different faculties in the university, and we put together a multidisciplinary team, and we pitched the idea to Global Challenges, and we got it. So that became a pilot of a leadership development intervention based on self-determination theory. So when PhD number one wrapped up, that 
initial work then opened an opportunity to say, okay, well, can I turn my PhD into the next phase of what that SDT leadership development research might look like? And that's what happened. Yes, a great lesson in the value of side projects there, I guess, Vivian. Now, before we get back to where that research led, I do want to touch on one of the other challenges that you faced through your PhD journey, which was that you also became a new mother partway through this second PhD. Obviously, there's a huge time commitment from both of those angles, from the PhD and motherhood. Can you tell us about the challenge of juggling those and and how you dealt with being a new mother at the same time as working on this academic project? Absolutely. Well, the good thing about the second time that you do your PhD is that you already know um, a lot than what you did when you started. So I was able to quickly progress through the first part of putting together a research project and um, and the design and all of that and actually made for a stronger project. So I made up, a, I caught up a lot of time in that first phase. But as you were right, we started our families. I had my very first child and welcomed the world of motherhood just as I'd started embarking on this second PhD, which was incredibly difficult. So for those that have become first-time parents, they know the challenges associated with that. For those that have done a PhD also know the challenges associated with a PhD and combining the two of those, um, lots of hurdles, lots of challenges. But it actually made me a better researcher and a more efficient researcher. I guess I learned two things. First of all, I learned how much I actually enjoy research and I was using every time the baby was asleep I'd be coming and sitting down at my desk and just doing something little even if it was just data analysis or just plugging away a little bit at my research and I felt that was helped connect me with who I used to be and I guess use my brain there's a big transition you go through with motherhood Um, so that was really cool so I get to learn that but the key thing that I learned was how to work in tiny little pockets of time. Basically, every time the baby was asleep, I would quickly come and sit down at my desk and I would use that time to do something. And then as soon as the baby was awake, I'd switch back into mum mode. So I became very, very productive um, and doing the rest of my PhD and now also continuing my academic career. I now have another child as well. I still can use those amazing time management skills where whenever the kids are asleep, I can use, even if it's just half an hour, I can sit down and dive straight in to really nitty gritty work. And then as soon as the kids are awake, I can step out and go back into mum mode and being able to transition that quickly and being super efficient with the time that I have is um, a really amazing skill that I have now. Yeah, definitely, Vivian. I mean, time management is such an important skill and something we can all use, but when you're facing both a PhD and motherhood, it becomes all the more critical. Now, if you don't mind, we'll move past, I guess, some of the challenges because there are certainly highlights from your PhD journey as well. And I'd particularly like to touch on the three-minute thesis competition. And just for the benefit of our audience, I'll explain it's an annual competition that runs at university campuses all around Australia and indeed the world that asks PhD candidates to explain their research in three minutes or less. Now, students will start by competing internally within their lab group and then perhaps to a university final, a national final even, but you won your way through the whole way to the Asia-Pacific finals, representing Australia as one of the top science communicators from that year. If you don't mind, I'll play a quick snippet of your three-minute thesis presentation, and then we'll get back to some questions. 
a destructive storm is raging outside. Gale force winds, torrents of rain late at night. Alex receives a phone call at home, puts on a pair of orange overalls, tucks her family into bed and heads out into the storm. Alex is a volunteer, one of 260,000 fire, emergency service and ambulance volunteers who are the backbone of emergency response in Australia. These organisations have a big problem retaining their volunteers. A very large number of them quit and the issue is so serious that a recent government inquiry has concluded that Australia's future capacity to respond to and recover from emergencies is at risk. My PhD is dedicated to addressing this problem and to help stop emergency service volunteers from quitting. So I'll leave that there for now, but I will link the full presentation in the description to this podcast if people want to check it out. Firstly, can I just say congratulations for making it so far in that competition. It's an amazing achievement. Our audience might be able to hear from the audio that these are given in large auditoriums, and there's usually quite an audience there, so it's a nerve-wracking experience. I wonder, what, what are your reflections on the three-minute thesis competition and on communicating your science in this way? Absolutely. It was great. Honestly, I feel like I rec highly recommend the three-minute thesis to any PhD student. Um, I did mine near the very end. So I had written up my results. I was, I was in the final phases of writing my research. So it gave me a really incredible opportunity for learning how to succinctly and clearly communicate my research. I think all of us PhD students at some point get asked, what are you doing your PhD on? It's such a difficult question um, and it's so difficult to answer. So the, the three-minute thesis helps you create a narrative or a story around your research to make it easier to communicate. And then the benefits of that was that I could then go and communicate what I was doing in my PhD to other organisations and other people and it actually spurred more work and more research opportunities out of it because as a researcher I was able to clearly talk about and break down my research in a really simple way that was easy to understand for people and so and people could see the value of it. Yeah, an incredible skill, Vivian, and certainly one that you have applied since because you've attracted several really major volunteer organisations to your work, including Surf Life Saving, the SES, and the Rural Fire Service. I wonder if you could tell us what is it that you are finding when you're going into these volunteer organisations? What are the challenges that these organisations have with their leadership systems at the moment? Yeah, um, so I guess... Generally, if you look at the key trends in the volunteer sector at the moment in Australia and you see, look at what's happening in volunteering in Australia, we see that there's a general decline in the percentage of the population choosing to volunteer. There is also more non-profit organisations relying on volunteers. So there's a bit of a supply and demand issue. There's also changes in the way that people are volunteering as well, which is another thing. They're not staying for long. So volunteer organisations are trying to grapple with retaining volunteers in a really highly competitive market and provide this optimal volunteering experience for people. So when you start to dig into, well, why is it that people are leaving? What's going on? Um, some key things keep coming up. And one of the biggest issues is the quality of leadership. So volunteers 
aren't really happy with the way that their leaders and managers are talking to them and interacting with them and treating them and they don't have to put up with it because they're volunteers so they leave I think all of us in our work experience had an experience of having a bad manager but we have to put up with it I guess at work because it pays the bills at least until you find another job but in a volunteer organization they just leave so that's kind of been the trigger point at which I've been going into organizations and trying to do some organizational development interventions and some projects on understanding those leadership factors and trying to change the quality of leadership provided to volunteers. And I guess with that context in mind, what are the interventions you're crafting for these organizations? Could you give some examples of the programs that you've been working on developing? So my work with trying to change the quality of leadership in volunteer organisations has been primarily around evidence-based leadership development programs. So because my industry background is in leadership development, I got really frustrated with leadership's a big problem in all organisations, not just volunteer organisations, everyone. And organisations invest a lot of money and a lot of resources into leadership development. But I had a big problem because I found that the things they were doing and the things they were teaching leaders and the way they were teaching leaders it wasn't really based on any evidence so as part of my PhD what I now do is about looking at an evidence-based approach that's three different elements it's evidence-based content so using self-determination theory which is based on interpersonal skills and also satisfying three basic psychological needs which are autonomy belonging and competence and when these three needs are met then people are happier, they're more motivated, and they're more engaged. And this model, this evidence-based content, has 30 years of research behind it, and psychologists in all different fields um, are very excited, psychology researchers, using this theory because it it just simply works. So it's it's a very popular theory at the moment. Um, So it's about bringing that into the real world and helping leaders access that and use it. So... That's number one, evidence-based content. The second piece I focus on is evidence-based learning design. So as a learning and development professional, I am very particular about quality leadership development and how we can enable high-quality educational experience where we actually get change in people. Um, I heard a, a quote recently by Dr. David Day, who is the very prominent researcher in leadership development. And it was that people in organisations typically think of leadership development like a trip to Disneyland. So they're going to go on these amazing experiences, on these amazing rides and come out changed. And I always think, well, you know, there's so many of us that go to learning and development programs or training programs, come back to our desk, put the notes back on the table and think, oh, that was nice. And then sit back down and then just keep doing what we always do. But Dr. Day was saying, well, it's not actually like a trip to Disneyland. Leadership development is actually more like a gym membership where you have to put in the effort, you have to go and you have to work on it to make these lifelong changes. So a lot of the evidence-based learning design is about using experiential learning approaches, facilitating application. So it's not just kind of sit down, teach someone a program and some content and then leave them to go and do it. It's about giving them experiences and opportunities to embed that into practice and to make lasting changes. So that's number two. 
Number three is evidence-based measurement. So typically organizations after a learning and development or leadership development experience will evaluate it if they do simply by participant feedback at the end. So you might do a feedback sheet. We've all done them before. What did you think about the program? How satisfied were you? What could we change next time, etc.? Which just taps into this really superficial level of impact. So what I like to do is apply experimental approach to measuring change. So we run them as proper experiments. There's a control group of leaders. There's an intervention group of leaders. We do pre-test, post-test. And I also measure the impact on followers. So we also do the next level down to see if you know, the changes have actually been embedded and noticed. So this is a very, very different approach, but this aligns really well to collecting data and research and being able to kind of blend academia into applied organisational practice in a way that benefits both. Great, Vivian. And while you've been working on these interventions and working with these organisations, you have personally done a bit of a professional pivot as well, because you've gone from a pure academic setting where you're delivering these from a university to running your own consultancy. And I guess I'm interested because that's also included taking on a lot of the the management and leadership roles of running your own business, uh, both in terms of paperwork, but also having subordinates and, and managing them and their time. I just... I wonder how you have accomplished applying these leadership skills internally within your organisation as well as teaching them to others. Well, it's nice to know that everyone has challenges with managing people and leadership is a very, very important thing. So as a leadership professional and with my all the knowledge that I'm meant to have, I try really, really hard to apply it in all my communication and the way that I that I work with people and work um, with my research assistants and my research associates, which has been um, challenging as well because I pick up on habits that don't align with what I know a good leader is. So it's a development experience for me as well, which is really nice. So I'm doing a lot of intentional reflective practice as part of my own leadership development journey, which is pretty cool. But um, yeah, also currently struggling with all the things that people that own their own business struggle with, managing all the admin side of things. Um, I've had to get very good at accounting and learn all this stuff. I have to run payroll and a lot of project management. But I think that's I've done a lot of that in my previous um, industry roles. So I'm fortunate enough to to have good project management skills, but I think that's definitely a capability that you need um, when you're doing industry work and, and running multiple projects simultaneously, keeping communication with your stakeholders, all that kind of thing. Well, no doubt your academic journey and the journey of your consultancy is far from over, so I'm sure the business processes will continue to improve alongside your teachings. Before we let you go, I want to ask one final question, and it's a question we've asked all of our guests this season, which is, do you have any advice for young entrepreneurs or young researchers who are looking to operate in this translation space between science and industry? Absolutely. So one of the key things, I think, if you're a researcher and you would like to engage more with industry is as researchers and academics, we work in these weird silos where our research communication is primarily in academic scholarly contexts. So we do uh, journal articles and when we present our research, we present at conferences, which again are more academic peers, but that's not where industry are. People in in typical industry and organisations can't even access journal articles. So 
what I would recommend is go to industry and go to the places where industry stakeholders are and communicate your research there. So there's a lot of industry events and trade events where the focus and the audience are not primarily academics but practitioners um, looking for new ideas, looking for the knowledge that you have and the stuff that you're working on to make a difference. So that would be my primary recommendation is to go to those things and communicate your research to industry. And in doing so, you'll also practice communicating academic language in a way that's easy to understand and to be able to communicate your research and the benefits of your research to that industry audience, which is key in being able to engage industry and develop industry partnerships and collaboration with your research. Great advice, Vivian, and that's a wonderful place to end. So thank you so much for being part of the Lab Notes podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Leo. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.